Father God, thank you that you give me the privilege of, of, uh, of speaking your word. I just pray that it is indeed your word uh, that, that I speak today. I just pray that you'd give us uh, hearts to understand what it is that you're actually saying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I've been reading a lot recently in the news about people being persecuted for their beliefs. I mean, primarily Christians, but, but other people of, of other faiths and, and people of other uh, convictions as well. Um, I was reading about um, uh, some people in, in the Yemen, uh, Christians that are meet, were meeting in a, um, a church and were sort of dragged out and um, you know, beaten up for uh, their beliefs. Um, and I was reading about uh, the same sort of situation going on in, in India, um, where the Christian community was being persecuted. And, you know, we, we, we hear about it all the time in the news, don't we? Different faith groups, different um, people with different convictions being persecuted. But imagine if you were sitting in this church service and being um, forced to, to sort of recant Jesus uh, on pain of death, um, and you had to, to worship the Lord Sunak or, I don't know, somebody. Um, what would our response be? What, what would we actually do? Um, would we renounce God? Would we have the, the courage of our convictions to go through? And it's, you know, this is such a hypothetical situation for us sitting in, in the, 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 the leafy suburbs. But, you know, it's been, it was ever thus from the early church. Um, I, I was uh, reminded of what it must have been like for early Christians uh, in the first century. Um, the Romans, you know, until sort of later on with Constantine, they, they really didn't like Christians. Um, and I was forced um, at school to do Latin and we had to read letters of Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. Um, and so I thought I'd inflict some of those on you now, um, because what they do is they give us insight on what it must have been like to be a Christian in those days. Pliny the Younger was an administrator. He was a good friend of the Emperor Trajan, who kind of put him into posts around the Roman Empire um, to administer his, uh, his law. And there's lots of letters that Pliny wrote to Trajan, the emperor, and Trajan wrote back. Um, and they give us quite a bit of insight as to, to how they, they dealt with Christians. Um, so let, let me just read um, one little passage. It's not very long, just to give you a flavour of what it must have been like. I won't do it in Latin. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> I'd struggle now to remember it, but there you go. So this is Pliny writing to, to the Emperor Trajan. Um, in about AD 80. So the Christian church is, quite, is reasonably established at this point. Um, for the moment, this is the line I've taken with all persons brought to me on the charge of being a Christian. I've asked them in person if they are a Christian, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with a warning of the punishments awaiting them if they persist. I order them to be led away for execution. Or whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. 
But it's pretty summary. You get three goes. <laughs> Otherwise, you're, you're off. Trajan replies, my dear Pliny, you have followed the right course of procedure in this. So he, he thought it was brilliant. He, he, was, he was up for it. Sorry, I've got a PowerPoint going at some point. Probably will. This is a line. This is a line I've taken with Christians. If they persist in their omission, I send them off to be executed. So the point I'm trying to make here is that worship and praise of, of God, the one true God, hurt them as Christians. And people around the world today in India, in Yemen, just to name two places, are experiencing the same thing, that to, to worship God hurts them. It costs something to worship God. And I just wonder how much it costs us when we worship God. We're, we worship God because we're told to praise God in Psalm 150 and numerous other places. We're, we're, we're told to offer ourselves as living sacrifices in Romans 12, verse 1, to the glory of God. We're told in Hebrews 13, verse 15, to offer pleasing sacrifices of praise to God. So, so this idea of a, of a sacrificial worship comes up time and time and time again. And I'm not going to suggest that we need to be sacrificing ourselves physically to, to the worship of God. But let's, let's kind of explore what worship is and what it should cost us. The um, church in 1648 came up with, uh, they had a big conference in Westminster and came up with this um, kind of creed. It's called the Westminster Catechism, for those of you that are interested. And one of the main, um, the first thing actually in that catechism that they, they agreed was this statement. So the catechism basically asks lots of questions and then answers them, goes through all of the, the Ten Commandments and, and explains why they're important. But this is number one in the Westminster Catechism. So they thought it was really important. What's the chief end of man? In other words, what's the point of us? And the answer was that they wrote down to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And actually, when you explore the Bible, it's very clear that God made us to be a worshipping people. That's the point of us. God made us in his own image to worship him. And so worship needs to be a kind of central tenet of our faith. It needs to be a, ten a, a central uh, part of our core, of our being, so that we glorify God and enjoy him. So it's kind of bit carrot and stick. We glorify God, but we get to enjoy him and we get to enjoy the rewards of knowing and communing with God. And uh, the people in 1648 trying to kind of 
get the word out to the people because at that point you could if you were if you were a kind of common person like us you would be uh, just going to, to church and hearing what the priests and the, the the church people wanted you to hear and this was an attempt in 1648 to kind of get the word out there so that everyone could understand firsthand what it meant to be a christian to glorify god and enjoy him forever and Romans 11, 33 to 36, gets called the doxology. Um, so some of you will be familiar with this. This is Romans 11, 33 to 36. And, and it's called the doxology, which is a bit confusing because it's a, a mixture of a Greek word and a Latin word, dox, doxa, uh, which means glory, and uh, uh, logos, meaning to study or the word study. Um, so it's the study of glory. And, and this is these are the words. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. This is very much what the people writing the Westminster Catechism were, were hanging that first statement on. What's the, the end of, of man? It's to glorify God because we're made to glorify God. From him and through him and for him are all things. It's a lovely, lovely passage, isn't it? And kind of puts into context what it is that we uh, are supposed to do in our worship. And I'm not just talking about singing hymns in, in terms of the worship. I mean, our whole beings worshiping God every day, every minute of every day. When I was um, very much younger, as a boy, I was in the boys' brigade, and we used to go to Haytor um, in Devon uh, to a to a camp there at the foot of Haytor, and um, at, at the sort of top of Haytor to the right. There's an old quarry. Um, and I mean, again, this is in the days before health and safety. Um, <clears throat> but you used to be able to go and, and kind of climb around in the quarry. <laughs> I mean, it was a disused quarry. It had a lake in the bottom of it or a pit that filled with water. Murky, green, horrible water with lots of old industrial equipment lying, sticking up out of it. Um, and the, the leaders of the camp, the adults that, that were in charge of us, used to say, you can't go in the water. You can climb on the cliffs, like 50 feet up in the air. That's no problem. Uh, but please don't go in the water because it's bottomless. You'll drown. And we, we of course, had to find out if it really was bottomless. So we used to chuck kind of old things that we found lying around in there. But in the end, the only way to really find out was to get in. And... Um, it turned out to be quite deep, actually. <laughs> um, once you'd avoided the old bulldozers and bits of kind of, you know, reinforcing rods sticking up that were trying to impale you. The point I'm trying to make is, 
I never really discovered how deep it was. We never got to the bottom. So it was deeper than small boys could dive in murky green water. That's the kind of, and, and, and we were fascinated by that. The idea that, that it kind of was bottomless and there was no bottom. And, you know, when you're when, when you're kind of 12 and 13, you don't kind of you can't logically think, well, look, it's a quarry. There must be a bottom to it. We just thought it went on forever. And the adults were telling us that. So great. And that's the, that's, I think, what 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 God wants us to have in terms of that first verse. The depth of the riches and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. There's no it's so deep that we can't understand it. We don't know that there's a bottom to his love and his riches. We almost need that childlike kind of wonder um, and understanding or lack of understanding, depending which way you look at it, that God is unfathomable. There's a great word in a great hymn that, that we, we've, uh, we probably should sing here, actually. Um, there's a, there's a good good uh, line. I'm trying to think of the actual line. It's, it's a, it talks about uh, immortal, invisible, uh, God only wise, in light inaccessible. Yeah, exactly. But there's a there's a, a line in there where they use the word ineffable, which is just a great word. And and that that word ineffable just is, is exactly what I've just tried to describe very badly. That it's that. We just don't know. It's just too big, too amazing. And if we think like that, don't we want to worship a God like that? So how should we worship and praise? Well, it, it should be sacrificially, shouldn't it? It should cost us something. The early church, when you went to worship in the temple, you had to kind of take along a sacrifice uh, an animal or something, often, so you'd, you'd buy your dove or your sheep or whatever it was and you'd offer it up as a, a sacrifice. But thankfully, we don't have to do that now because I think that would be a bit messy. Um, but shouldn't it cost us something to worship God? Maybe it costs us time. It costs us our effort. It costs us our involvement emotionally. To, to be part of, of that worshipping community of God. It, it's more than just a Sunday thing. Maybe it costs us financially. Maybe it costs us um, in our the way that people look at us, how people see us. But it should cost us something. God wants us to worship sacrificially because that's how he made us. And then having established, therefore, that, that, we, uh, that we want to, to worship sacrificially and it should cost us something, then we get into the whole thing about what form our worship should take. And that's a huge kind of work, which I'm not going to get into now. Um, you know, it's Baptist versus Anglicans. It's arm wavers versus eyes down on the floor, worshipping in reverend um, faith that way. It's, um, it's, it's hymns against songs. Choruses against it's like Hillsong versus Bethel. It's um, standing up or sitting down. It's clappers and arm wavers versus silence, etc., etc. I mean, you know, we could have whole sermons on that. That's not what this is about. 
the form of praise that we use is, is actually, to me, relatively unimportant. Uh, as long as our reasoning is correct and, and our heart is right. And, and this idea of trying to get people to think about how we worship is, is nothing new. I mean, it's in the Bible. Larry Norman, um, an old um, an old Christian musician, a friend of mine, he's, he's, uh, he's dead now, but he, he wrote in 1975 about how we had to worship sacrificially and how, how Christian music of the day was just one way that could help us to do that. Martin Luther uh, used to write novel music in the 1500s, um, and he was really criticised for that. Um, you know, and, and in 1690, a, a young Isaac Watts um, was really bored with the music that he was singing in church, and his father challenged him to write something better then. And so Isaac Watts, 350 hymns later, including When I Survey, rose to the challenge. William Booth was criticised in the early days for taking music out of the church with unfamiliar instruments. Mm. But look what he did. He reached hundreds and thousands of people through the Salvation Army. <coughs> I can remember in a Baptist church not very far away from here, some years ago, when... Um, I, I joined the Baptist church, got my guitar, and sang a song in the church. They were very much more used to having an organ, um, which is fine. Loads of people came up afterwards and said, thank you so much for that, it was brilliant. One person came up to me and said, you're evil, that's a loophole for the devil. <laughs> which, which took me a bit by surprise, because it's <laughs> It's, yeah, stringed instruments are relatively scriptural, I think you'll find. Um, and it wasn't like I was singing, you know, a, 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 a dodgy song. Maybe you just didn't like my voice. The point I'm trying to make is there's always new stuff coming along. And how we worship is less important about than why we worship. Psalm 43 says... He puts a new song in my mouth. Psalm 33, verse 3 says, sing to him a new song. Psalm 149, sing to the Lord a new song. So, you know, God wants us to sing new stuff. And I don't think he means literally songs or just songs. I think the idea of singing a new song to the Lord means thinking about a new, perhaps a new way to worship him. A new time to worship him. Maybe I'm exploring at the moment, um, and it's something I think somebody else, I can't honestly remember who put the suggestion into my head, but it was, it might have been Garrett um, in one of his sermons. Every morning now, when I'm lying in bed, you know that time just when you wake up and you kind of are conscious, and I'm conscious that Madeline's snoring next to me. Um, you come into consciousness, and I'm, I'm just saying the Lord's Prayer. And actually, it's working for me. I like that. I've never done it before, but I've been consistently doing it now for a few weeks. It's, um, 
Isn't that a new song to sing to the Lord? It's new for me. I'm finding the same thing with the Lord's Prayer. Right. Just that, you know, out of, out of nowhere, it just comes into my mind and you decide to employ yeah. it. Yeah. During the day. Yeah. But doing it kind of the, as your first kind of sentient thought, it, it's it's a really good thing. It's a, it's, and it's, it's, it's a new song to me, for me. It's something I've never done. So we shouldn't throw away the old stuff, for sure. We should keep that relationship with him vital and challenging. should inspire our faith to be fresh and, and new. And, you know, there's this kind of uh, church acceptance cycle, as I'd like to call it, isn't there? Anything new that you get in a church, whether it's a song, a minister, a carpet, a colour. Um, step one is fear and loathing. Possibly rejection. Step two is a gentle reconsideration. Maybe a few people uh, see the benefit of it and put it to the test and put it to the rest of the church. Um, maybe a quite a long battle, but that's step two. Step three is acceptance. Eventually, uh, this new thing, whatever it is, gets in and it's now good and wholesome. People who criticise it now maybe suggest it was their idea in the first place. I couldn't possibly comment. And then step four is this stagnation. It's no more, there's no more talk or debate about the new stuff, the new thing. It's just another old thing now. Um, and once new and exciting, it's become part of the furniture. And, and we do find ourselves in that kind of cycle, don't we, often? That's okay. Bringing new stuff and new finding new ways to worship God, whether it's a new song or a new cycle of worship in our own individual worship, is fine, as long as we make sure that it is glorifying God. God wants us to test our new ideas against the Holy Spirit. We're told that in John, uh, in 1 John 4, verse 1, that we should test things against God's Spirit. And if it's in line with God's Spirit, it's good. It's from God. So when we are trying new stuff out, let's make sure that we do it prayerfully and that we test it against the Lord's Holy Spirit, against the Holy Spirit to see that it's in line. I think it's healthy for us to have debate about the style of our worship and how we worship God individually. Everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. That's 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Everything that God created is good. So if we're in tune with God, we're testing it and running it by the Holy Spirit, new stuff that comes into our lives is from God, and therefore it's good. Sometimes... We feel that uh, a type of worship may make us look a bit silly. When I worship before I plan a service in my shed, I probably do look silly because I'm belting out a song, I'm jump, jumping about. Um, if I'm somebody was to look in, they'd, I, that's why I do it on my own. <laughs> and that's nothing new, is it? There's the story of, 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 uh, uh, of, of uh, David and, and, uh, and Michael in Samuel, where he danced 
before the Lord and Michael, the wife of Saul, kind of went, <laughs> lovely to see you dancing around. She was very sarcastic. Um, you know, the king dancing around in front of all the people looking like an idiot. And he was very clear that it's about worshipping God. And if it made him look stupid, God knew what was in his heart and it was fine. He didn't care that he looked stupid. And the last verse of that whole chapter is Michael, or Michal, I'm not sure how you say it, the wife. She never, she could never have children after that. Shame, man. It's God who deserves the glory. And we're full circle back to this doxology, this passage that's on the, the screen now. The glory of God, which gives us the reason to worship. And the reason's more important than, than the actual form of worship. So why do we worship? Because we are commanded. Because God is glorious. How do we worship? Doesn't matter. But it should be sacrificially. It should cost us something. And keeping the reason that we're worshipping foremost in our minds. That's what Sam, that's what David said. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I'd just like to finish with Isaac Watts, the man who wrote some stuff to annoy his dad. With a whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's how we should wish. Amen. Amen.